AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Psalm 127, verse 1 to 2. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Matthew 6, verse 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's good to see you all. Um, Good to see the orange out in the crowd today. Um, today we're dealing with anxiety. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking you this question um, that really is kind of the, the whole why behind our whole series, this offering a counter-narrative. It's, it's really trying to get you to think why our discussions about our faith often almost never go the way we think they're going to go. And conversely, there seem to be certain people that can defy everything that we assume to be necessary and their discussions actually go really well. Um, I believe when you really kind of probe the depths of that question, it gets you into a place where you have to admit that sometimes it's your nerves, sometimes it's the way a topic comes up. But the overall objective of this series is to really kind of help you to be able to contemplate different issues. And over the last couple of weeks, we've dealt with some of the foundational issues. Um, Starting today and here through the end of the series, what we're going to do is just take individual issues, things that all of us deal with and we encounter all the time with various people. Um, But sometimes we really, we're not prepared how to speak to those. And so over the next several weeks, what we're gonna do is be doing case studies of actual situations that people are facing and circumstances that we all face on a regular basis. Um, Certainly today's topic deals with anxiety. I think it might be probably the most common of any of the topics that I deal with. Um, It's highly likely that probably about half of you um, deal with anxiety to some degree and some of you almost to a clinical degree. And so I think this topic could speak deeply to Um, how you understand it and perhaps begin to open and broaden your understanding in a way that would really improve the way that you can discuss your faith with even with yourself as well as with others. Um, I want to give you start with giving you some statistics about anxiety that I think kind of frame our thinking about it so to pull it kind of in the centerpiece of of our thought. This first one is anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States age 18 and older. And so basically that's one in five. Now that is at a level where you have to go seek help. One in five people get to a point that their anxiety cannot be managed on their own. They're 
their efforts to talk with people, to kind of redirect their thoughts, proved to be somewhat uh, futile, and they end up seeking help, one in five. This next statistic is interesting as well. Anxiety disorders cost the U.S. more than $42 billion a year, almost one-third of the country's $148 billion total mental health bill. And so, again, now those are just the people that are going for help, and that's the, the cost to our economy. This last one is interesting as well. Over 6 million Americans suffer from anxiety attacks or panic disorder, panic attacks, and women are actually twice as likely to be affected than men. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. In the study question for this week, I try to ask people why that is. What is it about the typical constitution of a woman that makes her twice as likely to struggle with this? Obviously, there's a myriad of answers. There's not a single approach to this or understanding that opens it up, but I think that's pretty revealing. I think the statistics themselves indicate that anxiety and panic attacks are far more common in our society and our culture today than most of us um, are aware. But those statistics also explain why we encounter it so much in our counseling center. This is one of the most common issues that people come and seek help for. Um, but what's interesting, anxiety is not limited to people who are non-Christians, people that are Christians. It's not limited to people who are wealthy or people who are poor. It's not con confined to uh, economic distress or tremendous prosperity. You find it across the whole spectrum of our culture today. And so hopefully this is going to be something that helps you understand it a little bit, bit better because for some of you, you need to understand this so that you can kind of preach the gospel to yourself when it comes to anxiety. For the rest of us, I think we really need to be able to understand it well enough to be able to speak into a conversation that is likely to come up perhaps even this week with those that you know. Now, by definition, a simple definition of the anxiety is simply fear or nervous, nervousness about what might happen. In other words, it's a sense of fear or dread that comes over us when we face speculation or uncertainty, typically about events that are pretty imminent. And it is oftentimes attended with physiological symptoms as well, like sweating. Oftentimes you can tell when people sweat, there's some anxiety going on. Um, you know, heart palpitations, tension, all of those things arise from it. And so what I'm going to kind of do is establish the format that we're going to use for these next several weeks. And I want to start this morning by giving you a common case study. Now, Every once in a while I get pushback, even when I use circumstances and situations that are 15, 20 years ago. Um, this particular case study on Kristen um, is taken from a very popular uh, psychiatry site, and so it's just a very, very common case study. It probably uh, kind of fits maybe the profile of what some of you have experienced. Um, I'm just saying that so none of you think this is you, okay? Um, so, anyway, listen as I give you this case study. Kristen is a 30-year-old divorced mother of two teenagers. She has had a successful, well-paying career for the past several years in upper-level management. Even though she has worked for the same thriving company for over six years, she's found herself worrying constantly about losing her job and being unable to provide, provide for her children. This worry has been troubling for her uh, troubling her for the past eight months. Despite her best efforts, she hasn't been able to shake the negative thoughts. Every, ever since the worry started, Kristen has found herself feeling restless, tired, and tense. She often paces in her office when she's there alone. She's had several embarrassing moments in meetings where she has lost track of what she was trying to say. When she gets uh, to bed at night, it's as if her brain won't shut off. She finds herself ment uh, mentally rehearsing all the worst-case scenarios regarding losing her job, including ending up ho homeless. 
Now, before you all run out and say, that's me, <laughs> that's me. Um, you know, I pace when I talk on the phone, and I'm thinking, there's probably a lot of similarity. Um, I find myself losing track of things that I'm going to say in response to something that someone is saying. Um, and so hopefully this will kind of draw this a little bit closer for some of us that are perhaps dismissive about it. Oh, that's, that's not me. Now, the way we're going to push through these templates is that I want to start by kind of showing you how to access a possible belief narrative for, Chris, for Kristen. Now, we're going to use a common template to go through, the, the one that we actually find in the Bible, that starts with creation, that really is probing what it is we believe about things as they should be. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, every one of us in this room and all of you watching online actually have a belief narrative that can be interpreted according to this, to this template. And so the idea of creation is really probing what it is a person believes about things as they should be. The second part of this pattern that we see in Scripture with the gospel is the fall. And the fall is really accessing or probing the question, what do we believe is wrong? So in a counseling session, this would be like me asking you, what do you really think the problem is? And that's going to access the fall in a person's thinking. The third part of it is redemption, which that question is probing and sending kind of a search lamp through their thinking in regard to what we believe would actually make things better. So in a counseling session, it would sound like me asking, well, what do you think the problem is? And sometimes it sounds like this, what would be an acceptable outcome? For our counseling. Now those two questions probe deeply into people's belief narratives. They show you what they think is wrong and they show you what they think would actually salvage the situation and make it better. Now the last part of the template that we get out of, out of Scripture and from Christianity is future hope. And that actually is accessing, and I'll show you how to do this in a moment, what we actually are looking forward to in the future. In other words, if the redemption takes place, then what? And so those four pieces, creation, fall, redemption, and future hope, are kind of like a, a bullet plate or a boilerplate that you can push your belief narrative through whether you're a Christian or not. Or not. Now, in, Chris, in Kristen's case, her obsessive worry, this is one kind of caveat I'm going to put in this before we jump into this. In Kristen's in her case, her obsessive worry is the result of what she believes to be true. And so in that sense, it's a symptom. Now, I can tell you one thing that I learned in, in my counseling training back in 1989 was the professor told me, he said, almost never is the presentation problem the real problem. And then I asked him, I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, it's almost always the irritation, the source of the rub, the source of the difficulty that a person is dealing with is almost never the problem. It's always a symptom of the problem. And it's that case with Kristen. Her worry is growing out of the soil of her belief narrative. So let's kind of look at this and we'll move through a belief narrative that's possible for Kristen. She's not here, I've never met her, but I think just analyzing that brief case study that I gave you, we could determine this. So if we start with creation, what it is that Kristen believes should be, we can tell from that brief, those two paragraphs, that she's demonstrated the fact that she's not afraid to work. She's, her success in actually obtaining an upper-level upper management position tells you she's actually pretty good at what she does. And so having sustained this impulse to work and having applied herself to do it well has landed her in this position. And she's applied herself in her task and reached this position and fundamentally she believes that hard work should result in financial benefit and security. And so under creation you could just simply write for Kristen's belief narrative that she believes we are to work. She's not looking for a free lunch. She also believes that diligence in our work will typically result in prosperity and security. And lastly, we could write down 
that she really does believe that mothers are responsible to care for their children. All three are positive things. That's what she believes about what should be. Now, when we move to the fall, this, remember, this is the one that is asking, well, what did she really believe is wrong? Now, when we look at this, we see that Kristen has demonstrated that she's actually been able to accomplish quite a bit, but in spite of all those accomplish, accomplishments, she has become obsessed with the possibility of losing everything. And for the last eight months, it's just a growing monster in her thinking that she possibly could lose her job and thereby lose and forfeit the ability that she has to, to care for her children and even end up homeless. So under the fall, you could write that she believes what wrong, what's wrong is that in spite of all that she's done, injustice could take it all away. You could write down that that she's actually beginning to believe that there are, there's such a thing as fruitless labor. In spite of all that she does, in spite of trying to be the best that she can be in the position that she has in the company, it could turn out to bear no fruit at all. We could also, also write down that she has an unbelievable uncertainty about tomorrow. In spite of her being a part of a thriving company, she, perhaps even because of her upper-level uh, management access, she can see that the survivability and the security of that company's setting is not near what she thought it was once. She realized that a turn down in the market, she, that some new legislation or whatever could come in and completely bankrupt that company. And so she has, she's becoming increasingly pessimistic about the future. Lastly, she realized all of this converges in a potential threat. A potential threat that would actually harm her children if she isn't able to care for them. So we've looked at creation, what she believes should be. We looked at the fall, what she believes potentially is wrong. When you ask the question about redemption, what would make it better? I think if Kristen was here, we would begin to see that she actually believes that redemption would come in the simple fact that if she could have some peace that she, she knows she won't lose her job. If she could just be comforted a little bit more that there would be some security for her if she continued. And so you might just simply write down under redemption that provision and security. That's what she's looking at. Not a lot. She's not asking for a raise. She's not asking for a whole bunch of things. She just, her heart is so unsettled that that would bring her peace. A little bit of provision and security. Now, this brings us to the last part. Now, if we, as we begin to look at the future hope or the glory that she's looking forward to, let me give you some insight to how it helps you to talk about this with people. Most people don't go here, not on their own. You have to be able to ask them, well, what's past that? What's past that? Because many people in today, including ourselves, our horizon is really small. And so she's looking, look, I would be fine if I could quit pacing and quit forgetting what I'm talking about, if I could start sleeping better. And so all I'm looking for is someone to teach me how not to worry so much. And I think what would do that is just being able to maybe concentrate on a little bit more, you know, of what I presently do have than worrying about the future. But it, it takes a little bit for you to say, well, isn't the provision for your children a means to an end? Like going to school? You don't go to school for the sake of going to school. Well, most of us don't. Some of you might. But you know those dudes where they're in like the seventh year in their undergrad? That's not a good sign. That's not, never a good sign. Um, but it's a means to an end, right? Her provision of her children is unto what? What is it unto? And see, that's the future hope that she's looking at. And so maybe it sounds like healthy and productive children with a hope for their future. In other words, she wants to be able to raise them and introduce them to the world in a way that they can actually make it and thrive. And her provision now is simply the means to that end, and she's kind of short-sighted. She can't see past that to what she's actually trying to accomplish. 
So let's flip it over now and look at a counter-narrative for Kristen. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's important, I think, to realize that her anxiety is merely a symptom of, of what she's thinking. There's a fear, there's a dread that's crept in because of the uncertainty she has about the future. And therefore, simply telling Kristen, God's in control. Why don't you consider Christianity because you can trust a God that's in control? That's not going to help Kristen. Any type of meditative or contemplative exercises that can teach her how to be a little bit more steadfast in her thinking, I can tell you those are unsustainable strategies. They're not going to help Kristen because she's got a buttress in her thinking. There's a bulwark in her thinking that's as big as this building. And as long as as that's there, every time she pushes against it, it's going to push her back into where she was. And so unless you can actually access some of the deeper aspects of her belief narrative, you can't just throw out those platitudes. Well, Christianity is a great system because it, it actually believes in a God that's in control of all of those things. That is not going to help unless there's a dismantling of some of the belief system under it. So let's go to that first two verses that you heard from Psalm 127 and verse 1 and 2. Solomon actually wrote these. And he said this, he said, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives, his, uh, he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, what's interesting, when you examine those verses, it, it, it prevents you, there's a tension in the verse that keeps you from going to say, well, this isn't, this isn't a Christian that is able to just let go and let God, because the Christian is at work. You have a person actually working to build a house. You have a, a watchman that's actually trying to stay awake and accomplish something. On the other hand, it's not the person doing it by himself. And so what, what emerges from these, this perspective of the psalm that, that Solomon wrote is that he's talking about a partnership where you are actually applying yourself to do something, but you're doing it with the confidence that God is actually working with you instead of against you. And it's a very interesting principle when you begin to pull it apart a little bit. When, when you get to the second verse when he said, Eating the bread of anxious toil. The bread of anxious toil referred to the idea of being grieved or upset. And he's talking about a person that's being ground to powder, staying up and burning the candle at both ends, trying to make sure she's able to make it work. And he says, that's not going to give you peace. And so about 1,000 B.C., Solomon wrote this down to say, I know you're trying to do things, but if God doesn't do them with you, you're building it in vain. If God isn't there with you and you're trying to keep watch, you're laboring, you're keeping watch in vain. So he has to actually attend it. So there's kind of a principle that provides somewhat of a capacity to speak into a belief narrative where you're able to say, well, how do we accomplish anything anyhow? And Christianity has people in ditches on both sides. There are people that will tell you it's all up to you and you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. And then there's people over here that will tell you, you just need to let go and let God. But these verses draw attention to the middle where you are to apply yourself to do something, but you're to expect God to attend it. Unless he does, you'll have no peace. Now, that brings us to one of these foundational verses in Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. And I want you to listen to me closely because this kind of fits the overarching framework of everything that we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. Now, Solomon again penned these verses from Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. He said, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Now, what this is getting at, perhaps as clearly as any set of verses in the whole Bible, is that Christianity is a worldview. It's a worldview. Now, I'm not thinking of any of you particularly, but whenever you come into my office and I ask you, well, what do you think you need to do? 
It's very common for those of you that are Christians that say, well, I need to trust God more. That, that's a very, very common response. And any of you that have tried to float that one past me, I'll always say, that's great. What does that mean? And typically, people look at me like deer in the headlights. It's like, what do you mean? It means trust God. I said, I know you already said that, but what does it actually look like? And they said, trusting Jesus. And I said, that's not going to help saying it over and over again. And see, see, what Solomon is saying here, there is something about the voice of God that speaks to you at every decision. And I'm not talking about an audible voice. He's talking about an intelligent understanding of how the Scripture places you at these junctures that we all face throughout the day, not just once a week or once a month or once a quarter, several times a day, where you are faced with a choice. Do I trust God or do I lean on my own understanding? Do I hear what he says and know how I should think and act in this situation, or do I kind of make the script up in my own mind or go off my buddy's advice? See, this is an intensely probing statement that he makes here because it finds us out at those points of decision. Are we really trusting God? Have we heard his voice? Have we actually looked to what he says and has revealed to us when it comes to dealing with anxiety, with anger, keeping ourselves and our marriage the right way? treating our neighbor the right way, the way we greet people in the morning, it, God's voice speaks to all of that. And so this is no exception. In this particular verse, it is basically saying, okay, you or me. And it's almost as if you can hear God's voice asking Kristen, are you going to trust me? Or will you depend on your own thinking? Now, before the verses that Jesus, probably the clearest treatment of anxiety in the whole Bible is taken from the middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Now, the verse we didn't read sets the whole context. It's pivotal for the whole thing, and it begins in verse 24, and this is what it says. No one, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now what's interesting about that is that before he launches into the clearest, most direct teaching about anxiety, he throws out this principle that you're going to have to choose who you're going to serve. And what he's getting at is that he's warning us that it's absolutely impossible to have divided affections. Now, it happens all the time to me, and so I, I, I'm really unusual in a lot of ways, but in many ways I'm just like everyone. And I can tell you, I, I don't think this is as uncommon to you, that Jesus is saying, you better be really careful, because once you get tensioned, between two masters, somebody's going to lose. You're not going to be able to abide it. Now, the, the language, he says three times in three different verses. He says it in verse 25, verse 31, and 34, the exact same words. Do not, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Now, the context that flows into this is truly remarkable because he starts by saying, don't, don't put your treasure here. There's moths here, there's rust here, there's thieves here. Put it in heaven because it's safe in heaven. And then he moves to another passage in verse 22, 22 and 23 where he says that you've got this light in you. Your, the, your eye is the lamp of your whole soul. And so the context is flowing, saying, all right, you, you've got these affections that, for treasures. And he said, if you really want to win, don't put it here. Learn how to put it in heaven because it's safe there. And then he goes into this discussion about how you value things. But then he comes out and he says, you're never going to be able to serve two masters. Now, the word for money that's rendered in the ESV in verse 24 typically was just called mammon. 
and it had, a, it had a broader understanding of how it spoke to just any material part of life. And he's saying, you're going to have to figure out who you're serving. Now, the error that I want to keep you from thinking here before we press back into Pris, uh, Kristen's narrative here is Jesus is saying this isn't a one-time thing. Those of you that have known Jesus for years, you know how often you're inclined to betray him. How often your affections, just like a dog, jump the fence and run away. And you have to keep pulling yourself back. And so when he says this three times in verse 25, verse 25, 31, and 34, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He's getting at something that has a direct correlation to the two-master thing. Now, in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards said this, speaking to these verses this way, particularly verse 24. He said, God has divinely set the pursuit of his kingdom like two pillars, six inches further apart than any man can touch. And so the having of the one will always require the forsaking of the other. That's pretty brilliant. In other words, God designed it this way. He designed it in a way that you would have to decide which pillar you will hold on to because you can't hold them both at the same time. And the having of the one will always require the forsaking or despising of the other. And so he's pushing into this, I think, in a very interesting way. Now, the word that he uses for anxiety here is really interesting. I'm almost done with this, and we'll push into uh, Kristen's case. The word that is translated here for anxious can be rendered two ways. Now, this is a key to the problem, so listen closely. When it's rendered positively, it means legitimate care or concern. That's why it's a trip-up. When it's rendered negatively, as in this context, it's, talk, it's, it's pointing to obsession. It's talking about concern or worry that's over-concern. Now, the reason I point that out is the reason that many of us can't get over our anxiety is because we are so proud of it. As a good thing, we see it as a badge of honor. Now, when I asked you earlier the question, why is it that women are twice as likely? Some of you women are probably thinking in your mind, it's because my husband doesn't pay attention. If he only paid attention to things as I do, he would be just as worried as I am. But he's so flippant and so shallow that he can't see that he should be concerned. And so there's a, a way that we can take valid, legitimate just concern and justify it. And we can nurture it and hang on to it to the point that Jesus is saying, this can come between you and God. Three times. Three times. And this is what makes anxiety not only so popular and so common, it makes it so difficult to overcome because it begs the question, how much concern is legitimate and where's the line of over-concern? And that's what he's pushing. And that's what he's getting at. Now, what's interesting about these verses, particularly verse 25 to 34, is that his instruction is more than a mere warning about being anxious or having over-concern. Because he does offer a counter-narrative in the verses that's grounded in the fact that God actually takes care of us. He said, if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And then he offers a sustainable remedy at the end in verse 33 when he says, seek first the kingdom of of the." kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of this other stuff is a bonus and so he's driving past a simple blatant warning don't worry stop being anxious he's pushing way beyond that in offering this counter narrative in other words he's saying don't let your focus on your life be so constricted that you lose the fact that who you are before God is much greater than what you're worrying about. You've collapsed your thinking. Now, when you apply these to Kristen, these principles that we just went through, 
Psalm 127, Proverbs 3, and these verses out of Matthew 6, verse 25 to 34, it kind of sounds like this when you start with the creation. Now, let me give you a little insight first. When you start speaking to a Christian or non-Christian through this template, find their idea of creation that's right, that's accurate. Because most of the time, it's fairly obvious, fairly obvious. Now, with Kristen's understanding of what should be, you need to affirm that her understanding of work and parental responsibility that has so distinguished her life for so many years is spot on with Christianity. It's spot on. Now, those of you that, that think that somehow work is a shameful thing, it wasn't a shameful thing. It didn't come in after the fall. Work was prescribed to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 2, verse 8 and verse 15. And he said, you need to tend the garden. In other words, the Bible tells us that we were created with the industry. We were created with a, a sense of creativity and a work ethic that belongs in our lives. Not as a result of sin, but just we should want to see the world and the lives that we live in improve because of our effort. And Kristen has that. For years, she's demonstrated she's not afraid to work. She's not afraid to take responsibility for her children. She hasn't reached out and tried to have everyone else care for her kids. She was divorced, and she is able to say, look, I got this. And she's done a good job. So start with affirming what she actually believes that is consistent with Christianity. Now, when you go into the fall, it becomes interesting. Because when you, when you apply these principles to what Christian believes is wrong, it's going to blow her up. What I mean by that is that the condition of the creation in humanity is far more serious than she, she ever thought. The gospel plunges you to a place of understanding about all that's going on that makes simple injustice the fruitless labor almost infantile by its comparison you look in ecclesiastes 1 ecclesiastes 1 and roman yeah romans 8 solomon and paul say the exact same thing about a thousand years apart this whole thing has been subjected to futility it's frustrating. It's going to wear you out because God bankrupted its ability to give you what you think it can. That's way worse than she ever thought. It might even call her, call her to think into her mind, how was I not like this my whole entire life? Was it just because I didn't see things? That I didn't really understand them as they really are? Because the fall, according to the gospel, is desperately worse. Because the curse that God put on the creation, in its essence, was intended to turn us to him. And it subjected everything in the creation to that curse. And it brings death way worse than she thought. And so when you begin to speak to what's wrong, you have to be prepared to show her that it's much more serious, just like a doctor, where you, you go in and I'm having a little bit of a headache and now she has to convince you that she's going to have to operate because you have a tumor. And so there's an adjustment in the thinking that's going to come with what's wrong. Is that, Kristen, you're right. Injustice, fruitless labor, uncertainty, those are all valid things. But I have news for you is far worse than you imagine. Now, I have found over the years that people don't mind having, having people be straight with them. They actually respect it far more than if you try to mislead them because they, they know you're sucking it out of your thumb. They, they, they know when you're just trying to give them accolades and it's all going to be okay. You don't have to worry about this. They know that's not true. You don't have the capacity to, to assure them that. And to be able to say, Kristen, what you see is valid. Those are threats. And they could potentially take 
you and your children down. But what have you thought about the rest of it? Have you really ever found what you're seeking? That brings us to the redemption of it. What would make it better? And here's where Jesus is the hero. Because when you establish the fall the way the Bible does, what Jesus did actually makes a lot more sense. When it's really close, who can blame someone for just pushing just six inches further so they can finally grab a hold of the foothold, the handhold? But if it's a Grand Canyon, then it's a big deal. And so when you begin to discuss redemption, you're able to talk about it in a way... Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't over-Jesus-fy. Jesus... I don't overdo Jesus when people come in. Um, what I mean by that is that if you're talking with a non-Christian like at work or in your apartment building or a neighbor, if, if you're overly churchy, it's going to be off-putting to them. Now, depending on where the conversation is, is how much I would, I would press. And this is where you're able to say there's a redemption in this it's completely different than you thought, too. Because it's way more than holding on to your job. It's a redemption that actually reorients your understanding of the fabric of the world that you've lived in all along and you never understood it. It allows you to hold on to a peace and a hope because Jesus was the one that said, look, all of you that are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light compared to what you've done so far. And the restoration that the Bible promises that God is doing in the world magnificently fits the fall because he's making all things new again. And so the redemption that you're able to offer through the gospel meets the difficulty of the fall. It meets the disparity of the fall. Now that brings you to the last point, future hope. Now if you pushed her past her concern, or her deliverance earlier, she's already beginning to think that the future hope that the gospel offers actually is going to give her a confidence that her children can function in a world that she, the same one she has to deal with. Now, Tim Keller put it this way when you speak to the future hope. He said, everything's sad is going to come untrue and somehow be greater for having been broken and lost. We don't understand that. I can't explain that to you. How God could actually instill in your heart a sense that because it was broken and lost and the restoration that he's bringing, it's better this way than it was never broken. But that's the hope that we have in the gospel. See, that's the inspiration that makes the gospel good news. It's, it's not a condemning condes condescension that just pounces upon a person and makes them feel crappy about herself. But it's able to say, I totally understand how you see this. I totally get there's a part of it that you see is totally accurate. Your desire to care for your children. But what's wrong and what needs to fix it is far different than you ever imagined. But the gospel has answers. And the hope that you're looking for is a horizon that you could never imagine possible where there will be no more lost jobs, no more tears, no more sorrow when all things are made new. So you see, it's not as difficult as we've been made to think. Understanding a person's belief narrative according to the template of the gospel is not that difficult. And being able to answer and offer a counter-narrative is not as difficult either. And so hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll be able to access different things. Ne next week, we're going to look at anger. Because it's likely that there is as many or more of you in this room that struggle with a temper. And maybe no one knows, but those that are closest to you. But the gospel speaks to that. It truly does. All right, let's take a couple questions and we'll be done. 
How do you deal with the anxiety that comes from knowing that God is sovereign and allows suffering to happen? That's a very, very good question. Um, in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, it says that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher than your thoughts and higher than your ways. They're beyond you finding out. And I find some consolation in that, that there is a sense in which God is saying, there's going to be times where you're going to have to trust me. And this is where the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, in expressing his humanity, means so much to me. Because he was able to go to the garden and pray not once, not twice, but three times. If there's any way possible, don't make me do this. Let this cup pass from me. But in the end, it's not what I want. It's what you want that I really want. And so there's a time that God, and Henry Scudder put it this way, there's times that God withholds from you the graces that he freely gives to others. And he, those times he said you need to remember that he wants oftentimes that you would seek him in a better way. But he said there's also times that he requires you to honor him by going forward on his bare word alone. And that's comforting to me. I don't have to understand all the depth and the breadth of God. I can't. But it's enough for me to know that he does all things well. It's enough for me to know that my lifetime doesn't have to discern a reason. You see, it's somewhat arrogant for us to say, if there's no reason in my mind for what he's doing, then there is no reason. There can't be an explanation for what he's doing if I can't see it. That's just simply not true. And it's somewhat arrogant for us to assume that. And so let me just tell you that there's many times where I have to say, God, I know you know. And I know that you're honored by me just putting my hand in yours and saying, lead me. Walk me through it. Next question. And someone's faith, is someone's faith not credible if they struggle with anxiety, panic attacks on a daily basis, even if they regularly read, read their Bibles and pray? I would say in the past I would have told you yes. Maybe there's some of you in this room that I've told you that. I, I think it's important for you to determine how much unbelief is in your worry. I think it's a little bit Pollyannish to think that, wow, if I could just believe more, if I could just believe harder, then I'm going to make this thing go away. For some of you, that's, that's a fool's errand. It's never going to go away. You're going to deal with anxiety for the rest of your life. Just like there's some of you that are going to struggle with lying because you care so much about what people think that it's hard for you to just be straight. And that's never really going to go away. And so there's a part of this that only you can know. There's a part of this that you need to discern. Because to some degree, what Jesus is saying is that you lost your focus. Your life is much bigger than you've come to believe. And our Father in heaven says, seek me and my righteousness and I'll take care of the rest. And our worry, our turmoil, our grinding ourselves inside is oftentimes an indication of our unbelief. And so it's something that you need to be able to discern. It's something that I think as a counselor and a pastor, I'm able to come alongside better than I once was. But those are kind of dangerous lines to draw. To say, it just, it's just simple. You do, you're not trusting God. It's that simple. That's the black and the white of it. True. But you see, the humanity and how we carry it isn't in that at all. Last question. Thank you. The questions are intense lately. So, anyhow, let, let's pray. Um, I hope this series will inspire you. I hope this will encourage you that speaking to some of these everyday problems is a perfect way to share your faith. 
it is getting at some of those assumptions that I asked you about in the beginning. Because these are the things that people can't wait to talk to you about. When a, a coworker sits down next to you and you ask her how she's doing, she said, wow, today I'm exhausted. And you say, how come? I haven't been sleeping well. And this comes out. Learn how to speak in a way that pre presents the voice of God in the gospel. You can do it. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that this series, not only this sermon, would actually find us out. Because without question, there's people in this room that don't have many discussions with people because their lives are so isolated. Over the years, they've collapsed their lives into Christian circles, and the discussions they have actually seem easy because they're never around people that disagree with them. They're never around people that actually offer quite incredible belief narratives that contradict what they think. And so from their mind, it's kind of simple, and this whole thing is a lot overdone. There's other people in this room that have actually engaged the culture in a, in a way that they've lost any confidence that they could ever speak to it. And consequently, most of their friends would be certifiably shocked to find out that they really believe in you the way that they do. And so each of us probably needs to repent from one side of that or the other. And I just pray that perhaps this series would give us more confidence as we would move forward. It would help explain some of the things that we didn't understand and give us some simple practices that might allow us to share our faith with those around us. Help us, Father, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 